Today uh, we're reading from Exodus chapter 1. We're reading from the ESV, so it's in the news about, or you can switch your translation on your Bible, or you can just listen really closely. So Exodus chapter 1 from verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Sifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew woman, women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. And the second reading is from Exodus chapter 2. It's verses 23 to 25. From chapter 2 verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Um, not to be distracted, but Tom t- said to send his messages earlier and he never said to actually send them to Larry. So if you still haven't sent your message to Larry, let's all do it right now. Here you go, I'll give you five seconds to quickly hit send on that message. Now we can get into the message. <laughs> let's get that out of the way. 
Um, so welcome, We've, we're starting a new series on Exodus tonight. Um, for the next few weeks, uh, we're going to be looking through a few different chapters of this book and um, exploring a few major different themes that Larry's kind of picked out for us. Um, we're going to be doing life group studies at the same time. So if you're not in a life group, uh, I really, really recommend that you find one. Um, if you don't even know where to start, come have a chat to me, one of the other um, pastors here or one of the admin team. Just have a chat to someone and uh, we'll find a life group that works for you because um, this is going to be really going hand in hand. So sermons are going to go with life group studies. You don't want to miss out. I really recommend that you find one. Um, so we're going to today be starting at the beginning of Exodus, no surprise, um, just as Samantha has read out for us, Exodus chapter 1 and a little bit of chapter 2. Um, and we're going to be exploring the captivity and the cry. Beautiful. Um, we, as Larry's been training me up, he makes sure that I always do alliteration. So um, the next slide, we've got context, captivity, and cry. Um, I think that's 90% of what a pastor is, uh, finding words that all start with the same letter. Um, but these are the three points that we're going to basically visit. The captivity of how the Israelites actually got to this space, what's going on in their lives, the captivity that they find themselves in, and then the cry that goes out to God at the end of chapter 2. And the big philosophical question that Larry asked me to deal with was, what is the deal with all this suffering? It's one of the longest, most challenging, deepest human questions of, of what is the point of pain? What, what, what's God doing? Does he care? Is he there? Is he powerful enough to stop it? What is actually going on? And by no means am I going to give you like a nice, simple, perfect answer to this question today. But I think today God's got some really important foundational stuff for us to wrestle with and have in place. And uh, it will be really important for dealing with the rest of this series too. So as we're beginning a big new series, do you want to just join me and we'll pray together. God, I want to ask that you'll guide us as we start to explore this book of Exodus. I want to ask that you show us exactly what you know we need to see here. Help me to communicate clearly, to bring your, to magnify who you are, to show clearly how glorious you are. Be with us as we ask these hard questions today. Amen. Beautiful. So we're starting off with context. And just to make sure we're all on the same page, uh, Exodus is the second book of the Bible. Um, it's right after Genesis, and uh, it's kind of continuing on the story that we start reading in Genesis. It's very like story-driven. It's, it's a factual account of what happened here. Uh, in Genesis, we see God created the world. He creates people, and we see people quickly rebel against him. We're going to watch a video in a minute um, that kind of expands on this idea, but God created humankind to work with him, and we quickly decide to go our own way and work against him. Um, a lot of different things happen in Genesis, but eventually God picks Abraham to be the start of his chosen people, the start of the Israelites. Abraham has a son whose name is Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel, and that was at the start of our reading, the name of Jacob's 12 sons. If you haven't seen the musical, one of his most famous sons is Joseph, and we all know he has a famous Technicolor coat. I haven't seen it personally. Um, he has all these dreams. He ends up going to Egypt and becomes like Pharaoh's best friend. Um, in a time of great famine, Abraham and all of his, oh, not Abraham anymore, Jacob and all of his 12 sons end up moving down to Egypt to join Jacob, to join Jacob, to join Joseph. We'll get there eventually. And that's exactly what we see at the beginning of chapter one. We see all the sons down together in Egypt, finally together. But it also tells us that it's the start of the next chapter of this story. In verse 6 it says, 
Then Joseph died and all his brothers of that generation, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land, the land was filled with them. Now, I really want us together to put ourselves in this story tonight. So in order to do that, I want to show this quick video because the Israelites had a special relationship with God. They were his covenant people. This verse, verse 7, is, is really key to that because it kind of comes up again and again throughout the chapter, this idea that they were fruitful and multiplied. So I really want to understand what the people of Israel were feeling in this moment, so we're going to jump into the video now. Thanks, guys. If you've been around Christians, you've probably heard of the idea of having a personal relationship with God, which could mean different things in the Bible, like having God as a friend or your father, or maybe your teacher. But there's one particular way that the Bible talks about this relationship that you find all over. But strangely, we don't talk about it that much. And that's the idea of a partnership with God. A partnership like working alongside someone to accomplish a goal together. Right, and this is actually what you see at the beginning of the Bible. God creates this good world full of all of this potential. And then God appoints these unique creatures, humans, as his partners in bringing more and more goodness out of all that potential. But the humans don't want to partner with God. They rebel and try to create a world on their own terms. And so this broken partnership is the Bible's explanation for why we're stuck in a world of corruption and injustice and the tragedy of death. It's not like there's just one or two humans who have bailed on this relationship. In the story of the Bible, everyone has abandoned the partnership with God. So what God does is select a smaller group of people out of the many. And he makes a new partnership with them called a covenant. And in a covenant, God makes promises, and then in exchange asks his partner to fulfill certain commitments. And the purpose of all of this is to somehow use this covenant relationship to renew his partnership with everybody else. Now, there are actually four times in the Old Testament that we're told God initiates a covenant relationship with Noah, Abraham, the nation of Israel, and King David. And it's through these that God is forming a covenant family into which all people will eventually be invited. So let's see how these work. The first one is with Noah. So in this story, God has just brought the flood to cleanse the world of humanity's corruption. And Noah and his family are the only ones left. And so God makes a covenant with Noah saying, listen, I know that humans will continue to be evil, but despite that, I'm not going to destroy it like this again. Instead, the earth will be this reliable place for us to work together. Great, so what does Noah have to do? Nothing. And that's what's so interesting about this first covenant is that God is promising to be faithful even though he knows humans won't be. The next time we see God make a covenant is with a man named Abraham. God chooses him, promises to bless him, give him a large family, lots of land where they can flourish. And in return, God asks Abraham to trust him and train up his family to do what is right and just. And the whole reason for this covenant is God says that somehow he's going to bring his blessing to all families of the world through this one family. Cool. So that's certainly the first half of that video. And the whole video is awesome. And maybe I'll throw it on Facebook later. But I really want to think about this second covenant that God made with man because um, that's the covenant that we see the Israelites get into just before they come into Egypt. The covenant starts in Genesis 17. And let me just read a little bit about it for you. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your, no your numbers. Later on it says in verse 6, I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. 
As we read on in this chapter, we see that this covenant is well known as the covenant of circumcision. God calls his people to do something different, to be unique, to be faithful to his calling. And God promises that he will make them fruitful and multiply. And this is the promise that the Israelites are holding on to that almost defines them as they come into this captivity in Egypt. And this is why we see in verse 7, they grew and were increased, they were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So with that context, let's look at the captivity that they, we now find them in. I think the captivity is a really interesting point because I think, I remember when I was like six and I watched Prince of Egypt and it was a pretty happy movie with lots of colors and um, the, the story becomes very familiar to you once you've heard it a couple of times. They're in, Israel, they're in Egypt and it's not great, but eventually Moses comes and it's all awesome and that's what, kind of what we focus on. But if we really put ourselves in this story, it's horrific. It's maybe one of the worst circumstances that we find in the Bible. And there's two parts here. The first part is there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, did not know Joseph right at the start. That's a, yeah, beautiful, thank you. There arose a new king who did not know Joseph. And I want to stop and think about this idea of who Pharaoh was for a moment. Pharaoh, we know, was kind of this Egyptian god-like figure. They, they built monuments to him. He was considered to be like the most powerful ruler in the universe at that time. The Egyptian empire was dominant in everything they did. Huge monuments, et cetera, et cetera, have lasted to this day. But he wasn't simply powerful. As we see later on in Exodus, he also has like sorcerers by his side. When Moses eventually comes and turns his staff into a snake, the sorcerers kind of turn their staffs into snakes. And when Moses turns the river Nile all full of, full, of, full of blood, I'll get it eventually, the sorcerers also do something similar. And the sorcerers aren't nearly as powerful as what Moses does, but they can kind of imitate it to some level. We see these sorcerers are actually in touch with demonic forces of some level. Pharaoh isn't only powerful, but he's also in touch with demonic forces. And it's really important to understand who Pharaoh is because we also understand why he's doing what he's doing to these people. So immediately in verse 9, he says to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply and war breaks out. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. That's just some of the key bits of that passage. There's, there's few things in this world that I can imagine that are worse than full-time enforced slavery. With zero freedom, with constant heavy burdens, with people over you trying to make your life bitter. I know we all have jobs and some of us like them, some of us don't like them. Some of us have to work ridiculous hours, some of us don't really have long weekends or whatever it is. But our lives are nothing in comparison to this. It literally says they have taskmasters, they're ruthless taskmasters, working to make their life bitter. Can you imagine what it would be like to be there? And this wasn't brief, this wasn't like 10 years, 20 years. The context tells us that this was at least 80 years, maybe 100 years, maybe 200 years of bitter, harsh slavery. Can you imagine doing that for your entire life? And I said at the start that there's few things that I could imagine that are worse than this, but it immediately gets worse. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwives to the Hebrew women see, and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, you shall live. And we see this glimpse of hope for a second because the midwives don't listen to Pharaoh. They kind of fear God more than fear Pharaoh. So they 
don't obe- they're not obedient to him. But immediately we see Pharaoh go to the next extent. He says, Pharaoh comm- commanded all his people, let every son born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, you shall let, and you shall let every daughter live. This isn't just a couple of midwives killing a few kids. This is literally all of the Hebrew boys being massacred by all of the Egyptians. If any Egyptian saw a Hebrew boy, they would go and kill it. This is genocide. This is horrific. Pharaoh is maybe the worst character that we see in the whole Bible because birth, new life, is one of the most beautiful things we naturally have in this world. It is so exciting celebrating with Amy. It has been so exciting seeing this baby growing in Alana's tummy. It's a miracle. It is out of control beautiful to feel this baby kicking But to think that I could be stuck in a place where if it's a boy, the culture would try to kill my child is horrific. We see Pharaoh flip upside down the the characteristics of good and evil because he wants to get ahead. He wants to advance his own priorities. He can justify somehow in his own twisted idea that the murder of innocent children is a good thing to him. And it brings up this question that we started with, does God care? Where is God in all of this? What's he doing? If he's sovereign, then how can he allow Pharaoh to be in power here? And while the situation in Exodus is horrific, I'm about to make it even harder for us because it's not just in Exodus. This problem isn't isolated to this time. It's throughout the entire Bible. From Eden to the end of the world, this pattern starts and restarts and restarts. We see that Pharaoh is willing to do anything to get ahead. And it's not just Pharaoh, it's humankind are willing to do anything for the sake of advancement. And I say that it starts in Eden because we see this parallel here between the snake in the garden and and Pharaoh's character. I read this commentary that says that the adjective, or the whatever the thing is, the word that it uses to describe what Pharaoh did and what the snake did is basically the same thing. Pharaoh was shrewd by talking to the people and the snake was uh, crafty. Yeah, Pharaoh is shrewd and the snake is crafty. Let me read a little bit of Genesis 3 to you. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die, for God knows that you, that God knows that you eat of it, that if you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Both characters distort what God says is good and twist it. They, they do whatever they can to corrupt this idea of goodness, to change it, to work for their own purposes. They try to make us doubt that God is good. What God deems as a blessing, they deem as a curse. And as the video said, as sin enters this world, it corrupts everything. It destroys, it twists, it attempts to turn this world upside down. Eden is ruined. The blessing of multiplication for the, the Israeli, Israelites is seen to be a curse. And while it all looks like sin is winning the day, the question is, where is God? But we see the Israelites beautifully cry out at the end of chapter two. 
And it's this bit that's just full of hope. Chapter 2 starts off by telling us about Moses' birth and Moses' early life. But as we jump to these last few verses here, uh, sorry, Larry's going to talk about Moses next week. So we're just focusing on these last few verses. During those days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. Save slavery. Slavery? Sorry, I can't talk today. Sorry, guys. And they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. I picked the ESV version because I loved these four words. God heard, God remembered, God saw, and God knew. We need to know that when we cry out to God, that's what happens. But we also need to notice a pattern here. The people have received a promise. They're now in horrific circumstances, wondering, where is God? What's going on? And three, they cry out to him. And these final verses have this deep sense of hope. And I really want to wonder for you today, are you feeling that kind of season? Are you feeling, have you experienced, do you know God's promise? Are you feeling a sense of captivity, a season of pain, a season of challenge in your life? And are you crying out to him? Because this passage shows us that when we cry out to him, he hears, he remembers, he he sees, and he knows. It feels a little bit like I'm repeating myself because this message is a little bit like the sermon I preached two weeks ago on Good Friday. Uh, The Pharisees, no matter what they did, they couldn't overcome the blessings that God had for us in Jesus. Judas's betrayal couldn't overcome God's plans. Pilate's self-focused desire for praise couldn't stand against God's purposes in what Jesus had to achieve. Nothing can stop God from taking the worst and making it good. But it also feels like the same message because Jesus experienced Circumstances so similar to what the Israelites experienced. He experienced all kinds of pain, betrayal, death on a cross. Jesus knows what your pain is like. He has experienced it as well. It is such a blessing to know that he knows, he can relate to us. When everything is darkness, when everything feels hopeless, We can cry out to him and he hears, he remembers, he sees, and he knows. I kind of skipped over verse 12 in chapter 1, but I want to go back to it because it's beautiful. Uh, It says that the more they are oppressed, the more that they multiplied, and the more that they spread abroad. I love this idea that God does not need ideal conditions for his blessing to grow. His plans are so much bigger than anything else this world can put in our lives. It's almost in the midst of pain, in the midst of terrible circumstances that the most growth happens. No matter who governs us, no matter what our culture looks like, God is in control and he's working. And I love seeing this in the Bible and I love seeing it here because it's so clear. So if you're feeling discouraged today, I hope that you can find some rest in knowing who God is. Simply knowing who who the God of the Israelites is. Because not only does this text powerfully show us that God is at work in everything for their greater good, it also shows us what it looks like to stand against culture sometimes, to stand for God in the midst of captivity. 
I want to land on a super practical point. Uh, Josh told me this morning that um, today's actually like International Day of the Midwives. Is Josh in here? He's somewhere. Is it International Day of the Midwives? Is that a thing? No, it's, some, it's something like International Day of the Midwives. Is that right? In, in, yeah, okay, great. I had no idea that that was the case. I was like, this is perfect. Oh, yeah, you're listening. You heard, so. <laughs> Sorry, I feel embarrassed you now. Uh, I want to stop and look at these midwives because what they do here in this circumstance is beautiful. It's, it's amazing. So let me read back over it for you. It's verse 15. Sorry, it's not on the slides. I only threw this in kind of last second. Let me just read it for you. Verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one who was named Shiphrah and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. On one level, this doesn't seem like the biggest dilemma, right? If someone tells you to go kill babies, it's a pretty easy no. But if we think about who this is that's telling them to do this, it's the king of Egypt. He's basically emperor of the entire world, and he's giving you a direct order. He's saying, go and do this. He has literally unlimited power. No police is going to like monitor and make sure that he's doing the right thing. He can do whatever he wants to you. Disobedience to his command probably means death or, or worse. Obedience to him probably means rewards. Do you listen to him? Do you kill the children? Are you ready to risk literally everything that you have to stand for what's right. I love these two verses, and it's just verse 17 and verse 20, and I love because it tells us exactly how the midwives stood against Pharaoh, what it was that empowered them to do that. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the male children live, in verse 20. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people, the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. So I just want to invite the band up and I want to end on two points of of what was unique about these midwives. The first one is that they feared God. What does it mean in your life to fear God? Do you fear God? Uh, That's a huge question for me and maybe something that you want to wrestle with this week. What does that mean? And the second one is that they stood firm knowing God's promises for them. Do you fear God and do you know his promises? Because that is what's going to empower you to actually stand firm in this culture. Because we all have little pharaohs in our lives that are going to make us want to sell out, to not stand for our faith, to do all kinds of different things, to not be faithful to the creator God, the one who promised us all kinds of different things. We all have little pharaohs in our lives and if we're going to stand against them, we need to fear God and know his promises. And if you remember only one promise, let it be this one, Romans 8, 28 tonight. God makes all things work together for the good of those who love him. God makes all things work together for the good of those who love him. So let me affirm one last time and then I really will give it over to the band. When captivity comes, when difficulty comes, remember God's promises. Cry out to his promise. Cry out to him. Pray, ask him for help. And remember what it like is like to be like the midwives. Stand firm. Thanks, guys.